Hello, and welcome to episode 15 of the Venture Games Podcast. I'm Chris Quadio, and today I'm thrilled to introduce my next guest, Jen Richard, Principal at Bonfire Ventures. How's it going, Jen? It's going well. How are you? I'm doing great. So to kick things off, you know, for those who may not know you as well, could you just dive into your professional background? Yeah, happily. So I would say um, I have a bit of a traditional, non-traditional path to VC. I actually studied English as an undergrad, so very much a liberal arts major. Um, I was passionate as a writer um, when I was young. And when I graduated from undergrad, it was after right after the last crash. And so um, I actually went overseas and taught um, English to French students in rural France for a while and then came back to LA. And the only job I could get was at an entertainment agency, creative artist agency, which is one of the leading and best known agencies in entertainment, but of course, a far cry from what I'm doing now. And so I spent um, almost three years there, went through their agent trainee program, was on track to make agent, but knew that wasn't what I wanted to do long-term. And so we were representing talent like Eric Reese and Gary Vee and a lot of people who are in the tech space and who are leaders in the tech space at the time. And I noticed that what they were doing seemed more interesting than what I was doing on a day-to-day basis. And I noticed that there was a blossoming tech ecosystem happening around me in LA. And so I ended up just taking the leap and getting a job in support at a local LA startup. And that's kind of what started my journey into tech. And so that company is called Prizio. When I started, the founders were already thinking about starting another company. Um, that was a bit of a pivot from what they were doing at Prizio, which is a crowdfunding platform that helps celebrities raise money for charity. They were noticing that people were willing to pay to get these raffle tickets to, in order to get the t-shirts here. And there was something about these t-shirts that were designed by their favorite creators. And so Prizio was acquired. The founders moved on to start a company called Represent, which is essentially a t-shirt company that allows creators and digital marketers to create and sell their own custom merch. And so I went with the founders to start that company before it got acquired and then left with um, one of the founders of both Prizio and Represent to build out e-commerce at a women's fashion accessories company called Pop and Suki. And so I was there for about two years before I went to business school and got a job at an internship at Cross Culture Ventures, which is another um, early stage VC fund in LA. And that's where I really got my start. Absolutely loved it. Worked there throughout the second year of business school ended up graduating before they finished fundraising. And so I took another role at a firm out of Chicago and spent almost a year there before moving to my current position at Bonfire, where I'm focused on seed stage investments and B2B software. 
Awesome. So thanks for all the background. I actually have a Kobe Bryant Christmas sweatshirt that I got from Represent. Yes, from Represent. Yeah. I have that sweatshirt also, <laughs> and it's a really good one. And of course, more special now. You're right. Uh, so I actually wear it for, <laughs> I wear it on Christmas every year, you know, because I'm a huge NBA fan. So I'll watch NBA basketball on Christmas and wear the sweatshirt. So thank you. And I love it. <laughs> okay, so you're welcome. So VC is an industry in which I would argue, you know, sort of these non-traditional backgrounds are actually somewhat common. Uh, I'm not sure if you thought about this, but why do you think that is, right? Like, why do you think VCs come from so many different professional backgrounds? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I think that part of our job is investing in, you know, every different industry and knowing every different vertical out there and just being able to recognize opportunity and businesses across the board. And for that reason, I think that it's very difficult to find someone who can't bring any value to the team. I think that the more breadth of knowledge we have in our network and on our team, the stronger we are at what we do. And so I would say that, you know, that's probably why someone, you know, who's a doctor or someone who's a scientist or someone, you know, there's just a lot of different spaces where we see professionals coming in mm -hmm. and becoming investors and advisors and fund managers um, who just bring a very different lens than someone who comes from like consulting or investment banking. And I truly think there is um, a place in VC for, for pretty much anyone. And then, you know, given you spent a brief amount of time in uh, the world of entertainment, you know, I don't know if you've heard this, but I think I've heard people compare certain aspects of VC to some aspects of like entertainment and Hollywood. Is this something that you've heard at all? <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because, I mean, I've had this conversation with a couple of people who, so there's actually quite a few people in VC who came from entertainment, specifically mm -hmm. the agency world, specifically CAA, and one of them is my colleague Tyler at Bonfire, um, Austin Clements, I mean, there's just several, and I think that on the agency side specifically, you know, our job as agents was to go out and find new business and to build relationships and to network. And in entertainment, your value is your network. And I think that it's pretty similar in BC in that, you know, you're creating relationships so that you can build your business and um, find new companies, find subject matter experts who can help you with diligence you know, find people that you can recruit for your portfolio companies. And so I would say that the premise of how you become successful in this world is pretty similar. Mm -hmm. So after, you know, working as an agent, you have some much more relevant experience. You know, I think a lot of folks, you know, talk about the value of going from being an operator to being an investor, you know, an operator at an early stage startup, and you have quite significant experience doing that. And so when you mm -hmm. look back at sort of, you know, your experience at these startups and the skills that you learned, how did your time in the world of 
uh, startups as an operator influence your thinking and your ability as a VC? Yeah, it's a good question. And when I, you know, set out on getting into venture capital, I didn't really understand at the time that there was this path from being an operator um, to being a VC and how valuable that experience is. And so, you know, when I first got into VC and things clicked really naturally, I didn't really know what to attribute it to. But looking back, I mean, I think that there's a few things. I think that number one, just being able to gauge the competency and the motivations and just the abilities of a founding team and a founders is really, really important. And I think that, you know, that's something that you learn from working with and under those people. I would say another piece is just empathy and patience and having, after having the roller coaster experience of, you know, working at three very early stage companies mm -hmm. and, you know, seeing how things can kind of fall apart for a month and then take off again. And, you know, a bump in a road doesn't mean the business is falling apart. And I think it's just given me a different level of empathy for founders and for the business and for knowing that things are going to be very up and down. And that doesn't mean you have to also be on an emotional roller coaster. It just have, it helps me have faith. And I also think that it gives me a lot of vertical expertise. And so for instance, I, you know, ran e-commerce for a DTC company. And so I have a lot of experience and like passion when it, around e-commerce and um, businesses in the SMB space and vertical SaaS for SMBs. And also with Represent, our core business was built around creators. And I'm actually just starting now to tap into the opportunity that comes from the creator economy and the passion economy. And I'm starting to do more investing there because I know what it takes to um, run a, a creator focused business. And so I think that especially the vertical expertise are things that it's, it's difficult to become an expert in and to become a leader in if you've never worked in that space before, although of course it's been done, but I think it just gives you a different level of understanding. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I know you obviously love being at Bonfire, you know, you've talked about it and you've yeah. uh, written about it, but in <laughs> a parallel universe, would you ever consider going back to, you know, being a startup operator? Yeah, you know, it's a good question. And, you know, something I've asked myself over the past couple of years, and I would never say never, but I really don't myself going back at this point. Mm -hmm. And I think that the main reason for that is I don't like solving the same problem over a long period of time. And I think that while I was in early stage startups, of course, you know, as we grew and evolved, our problems grew and evolved a little bit too. But at the same, at the end of the day, you are still solving um, the same type of problem for a single brand. Mm -hmm. And for me, that just became a little boring. And what I love about VC is that 
you know, my day to day is completely different every day and I'm never working on the same thing. And every day I'm learning something new about a completely different industry or working with a different portfolio company and a different vertical and helping them solve like a completely different problem than, you know, the portfolio company I'm going to be working with in an hour. And I think it's that level of just spontaneity and the level of diversity within my job and my skill set that really keeps me on my toes. And it's what makes this job so exciting. Okay. And then hot take, which of the two do you think is more difficult? That's a good question. I personally have to say that VC is more difficult because I think that, you know, especially in single stage, early stage firms, the business very much operates like a startup in that, Mm -hmm. you know, we're a very small team. Everyone wears a lot of hats and we're figuring out processes and, you know, expanding the business as we go. I think that the difference is that I am just expected and want to learn so much more. And it's like, I don't just know about VC. I know about, you know, e-commerce. I know Mm -hmm. about SMB tech. I know about dev tools. I know about sales ops. I know about healthcare. And I'm just, you have to learn so much about so many different industries that it's really difficult to do. And I think that you have to be very, very passionate about your job in order to, uh, you know, basically allocate every free moment of your time to learning. That's interesting. I think you're the first person <laughs> that asked this question who's been on both sides, who said the VC side is more difficult. So that truly was really, happening. yeah, I think most people interesting. have thought being a founder or like being an operator at a high growth, early stage startup. Uh, has been the more difficult. Of the yeah. Two, all opinions are, well, are I'd like to talk to uh, those people. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, you know, you mentioned you were at Prizio and then Represent and then Pop and Suki. And it looks like the three companies had some continuity as far as parts mm-hmm. of the founding teams, right? Um, yeah. And so, you know, one, it takes a lot of belief in this founding team for you to you know, join them along the the startup journey three times, right? So I guess, you know, what gave you that confidence? And then what do you see as sort of the value of maintaining uh, continuity in the founding team when you are building multiple startups? You know, because it's something that we've seen in other successful founders or, or successful startups that a lot of the core team has worked together before. And, you know, there's some benefits to that. Yeah. Uh, so... I would say that going from Prizio to represent, when I first started at Prizio, we had an idea that this was going to evolve into something different. And I was pretty much on board with that at the interview phase. And so it's something that I knew would be coming really before I even worked with the team or, you know, really got to know them. And Mm -hmm. so I think that sticking with that decision as we went from one company to the other, though, was that, you know, Prizio was a bit of a test run to get my feet wet in, you know, the startup space and in tech and to be able to prove out my skills and moving on to represent. It was more trust than anything. You know, I was going in 
like filling much bigger shoes than I had at um, Prizio, you mm-hmm. know, taking on a more technical role, managing a lot more people, just building out a bigger area of the business. And I think that it was helpful, of course, for the founders as well to be able to bring with them someone who had already proven themselves at the previous company and someone that they knew could handle this new business area and someone who also, I mean, going from Prizio to Represent, I, you know, saw all of the first lines of code at Represent. Like I saw the MVP of the products. I knew the business inside out. I knew everyone on the team and what everyone did. And so it just made us a very cohesive team as we launched this new company, Mm -hmm. Um, especially to have someone who just knows the ins and outs. Um, I think that going to Pop and Suki from Represent, so Pop and Suki was started by a solo founder who was a co- the co-founder of both Prizio and Represent, mm-hmm. and his name is Leo. And I think that with Leo, it was something similar in that he was starting a new company. You know, you're as a solo founder, especially, you're putting a lot on the line. He was leaving Represent, which... He had to, you know, make some financial sacrifices there. And you, you want someone that, you know, you can trust with your business. And it was another opportunity for me where I'm working with someone that I really believe in and that I trust and that I know we have a great working cadence. And I was also given a really big opportunity. I mean, I was employee number two, basically. I was building e-commerce from literally nothing from the ground up. And I was able to manage the entire e-commerce business. So um, selecting our devs, managing our devs, um, selecting our 3PL, managing all of our logistics, managing all of our support. Um, And so it just was a really big opportunity for me that I don't know if I would have gotten, if I would have just applied at another random company saying like, Hey, I I know I can run e-com. Um, and it was, it was just a mutual trust relationship that worked out really, really well because we knew each other and we knew what each other's strengths and weaknesses are and and that we work together really well under pressure, especially. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. So shifting gears, you know, I know you touched on this briefly earlier, but what does Bonfire focus on as far as, you know, I think stage of investment you mentioned, but, you know, if you could just go over it again and then sectors that they're interested in, you know, what's the thesis generally and what sort of check size do you all look to write? Yeah. So at Bonfire, we are LA based and we invest in seed stage B2B software companies and Mm -hmm. we're, you know, B2B is pretty wide, but we are very focused in terms of the stage, which is seed, we're typically leading the round. And so right now that tends to be a one and a half to two and a quarter million dollar check into a three-ish, three to four million dollar round. Typically, we are typically taking a board seat and um, really partnering with our companies. And it's interesting to see as our companies have gone on to grow and raise subsequent rounds, how, you know, we still tend to be the founder's first call. And Mm -hmm. that's something that you really 
um, earn and that you can't mandate. And so much of our approach is just being an operational partner to our founders. And so my specific focus is um, e-commerce, which shouldn't come as a surprise, Mm -hmm. like vertical SaaS for SMB tech and anything that is kind of at the intersection of B2B and B2C. Um, At the previous firms I was at, I did a lot of consumer investing and, um, you know, I, I came from a DDC company. And so I still see the opportunity in consumer. And I think that there's definitely, especially now more and more companies where, you know, their, their buyer is, a solo creator and is that consumer is that b2b you know mm-hmm. it could be either or companies that are b2b2c that have a lot of opportunity too and so i kind of thrive in that space got it and then i read that bonfire has adopted what's called the diversity rider in their term sheets mm-hmm. um what is this yeah. and what is sort of the importance of this Yeah, so it's essentially um, a clause in our term sheet that um, that the founders agree to and it kind of mandates that when you are hiring, especially for um, executive level positions that you are um, that you have candidates that are coming from underrepresented backgrounds that you're considering for the role. And it's really just um, a push to make sure that founders aren't just hiring their bros they're going to the same networks when they're looking to hire for important positions in their companies and that they're really doing the work to make sure that they're expanding their reach and bringing people with different backgrounds you know not just professionally but also culturally to the table uh when they're looking to fill important roles because i mean we've all seen the numbers, diverse mm-hmm. teams perform better. And, you know, even coming to Bonfire, Bonfire wasn't a very diverse team before I started. And I think that as we've worked together as a team, our team could say that, you know, having someone with a different background, culturally being a woman, a lot of different things racially mm-hmm. um, has brought a lot of value to our team and the way that we look at opportunities. And so, I think that for a lot of founders and, you know, talking about like how I found this founding team and they wanted to work with someone they worked with before, a lot of times that ends up being, you know, people who look like these founders who tend to be white men. And we really want our founders to dig a little bit deeper than that. And then just following up, you know, you personally have also been a huge advocate, you know, for increasing diversity in the industry and just, you know, about the diversity challenges uh, generally. Um, And so as one of the few Black female investors in VC, why do you think it's so important for you to speak on these topics? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that you just hit the nail on the head and that, you know, there's so few of us that if I don't speak up about it, there's not many other people who can. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's part of the responsibility. But I also think that it's so much bigger than that. And I want to see a more diverse business landscape, especially around tech. And if I'm investing in founders at the seed stage, 
that go on to lead companies to IPO, you know, get all of the opportunities that are later created in these companies. Mm -hmm. And it's proven that, you know, women founders and diverse founders tend to hire more people who look like them, which means that in the long term, the more diverse leaders we have at our companies, the more opportunity that creates for diversity in subsequent roles. And, you know, we're talking about across the board, like we're talking racially, we're talking culturally, we're talking sexual orientation, we're talking disability. And so I think that in order for tech to actually make a change and in order for, therefore, the entire business landscape to become less homogenous, it takes us as investors in the early stage to make sure that we're allocating the capital to people who are going to make that happen. And I think that forces our hand to say that, you know, we can't just be investing in white men anymore. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then last question on this topic, and then we'll move on. Right. But, you know, it is obviously important to speak out if you belong to one of these groups, you know, but it can be as impactful, potentially arguably even more impactful if you don't belong to one of these groups and you speak out as an ally. Um, why yeah. do you think this isn't something that is seen super commonly unless, you know, there's some sort of event, uh, you know, like the recent events that have increased awareness? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question that I don't fully know the answer to because I'm not part of that group. Mm -hmm. But a couple, I have a couple of theories. I think that one is that people aren't being held accountable to do so. And, you know, if you're in a position of power and power that's preserved by being in the majority, I think that there's not a ton of incentive to speak, you know, against what you may perceive as your own self-interest. Mm -hmm. But I think that it's also a lot of reasons are less fish than that. I think that part of it is that VC firms are not very diverse and you see a lot of partners and fund managers and people working at VC firms who are looking around saying my team isn't very diverse you know am I really in a position to speak on the topic of diversity and to be an advocate when you know we haven't done our own homework yet or our own house isn't in order I think that there's a lot of people who are just engaging in these conversations for the first time and feel like they don't have the right language to be an ally or um, they they don't have enough knowledge to be an ally. And so I think that, you know, the one of the positives that's come from the past year is that people are being forced to have these conversations. And for a lot of people, it's really, really uncomfortable, but it's a muscle that the more you flex, the more comfortable you feel doing it. And so I do have faith that the more we begin to challenge each other, the more that we begin to have these conversations as a group and not just, you know, the Black folks and Latinx folks and VC, but like everyone coming together to have these conversations, I think the more natural they'll be for people individually. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. I tend to fall into the category more of the, you know, sort of selfishness angle, but the our house isn't in order angle is interesting as well and you know potentially makes sense but anyways yeah moving on to a lighter topic 
you know, you mentioned that you are interested in the creator economy and you've seen some interesting trends there. And, you know, I think the creator economy, especially recently, has just gotten more attention and, you know, sort of more hype around it. So what are some of the trends that you are seeing in the creator economy that you find particularly interesting or any companies that you've seen that you think are particularly interesting? Yeah, so, I mean, there's there's a lot of different trends happening. And I think that at the crux of all of them is that founders are trying to create opportunities for creators to better monetize and to monetize in different ways. And so, for instance, we just spoke with a company earlier today in the creator space, and it was focused on how do creators monetize their communities and you know, right now on Instagram and Twitter and TikTok and Facebook, you can't really monetize conversations you're having. And so this company was, you know, like basically monetizing group chats. And so that's like one thing I've seen. Another company that we've been looking at, a company called PopChu, is creating a business in a box for creators to be able to sell branded food items. And so essentially you like, for instance, what a launch they did is called Bitcoin pizza. And (laughs) these fans of this creator who goes by pump, they, you know, go on this website for Bitcoin pizza, they order the pizza, it has an integration with DoorDash, and they get this like branded Bitcoin pizza to have for dinner or whatever meal. And, you know, it's like having this intimate experience, like eating what your favorite creator is eating and something Mm -hmm. that he customized. And so, I mean, I think those are a couple of things that we've been seeing. Another thing that we've been seeing is a lot of tools help creators better manage their financials. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, like, apps that are helping with the accounting and how much money to set aside and helping them get set up for benefits and retirement accounts and a lot of things around that because you know if you're not on a regular payroll there's just a lot more complications you have with your personal finances so how do you solve for that and so I mean there's just an infinite amount of possibilities in the space and I think it's a space that will continue to grow, but I also think it's a space that's getting really crowded. And so my biggest challenge is figuring out who the winner will be in each category and and which companies in these spaces are really differentiated in what they're offering. Mm -hmm. And then by any chance, have you looked at the intersection of like creator tools and gaming? It's interesting you say that. So I have been looking at a couple of things and actually we recently did an investment in a company called Topia and one of the co-founders actually comes from the gaming space and Mm -hmm. there's a lot of different gaming elements to, to the platform. And I think that's what makes part of what makes the company so interesting, but it's also very much a place for you know, creators to bring together their virtual communities, a way for creators to be able to compensate or be compensated for these virtual interactions. And so I would say that that's a company that I think has really been thoughtful about their approach, you know, at the intersection of 
creators in gaming and one that I'm really excited about. And what is Topia, just for those who don't know? Yeah, so Topia is basically a metaverse. It's this platform that allows you to create your own virtual world and then uses spatial video and audio to essentially enable a more human-like experience. And so if we were doing this call right now in Topia, I would be able to, you know, have my avatar walk up to you, um, be able to see you, be able to walk away and go talk to someone else without our to, you know, our audio and video colliding, be able to customize the world around us in a way that, you know, reflects my personality, reflects what I want to convey to the world. And as a creator, I would be able to receive a commission on, you know, the people that I'm bringing into the world and who are having conversations. And also if I'm an artist or someone whose forte is customizing these worlds, I would also be able to create assets on the Topia marketplace and Mm -hmm. be compensated for those as well. Uh, Have you heard of Gather Town by any chance? I have. So, you know, obviously Gather Town's a somewhat similar concept. And I think there have been other somewhat similar concepts in the space. So I'm just curious, and, you know, maybe this is a bit nuanced, but as you see this landscape playing out, how many of these platforms do you think are going to be viable? And what are some of the ways in which, you know, Topia is different from some of the others? And you can keep it, you know, sort of like very high level. Yeah, it's it's interesting because, of course, as part of the diligence process, I looked at Gather Town. I looked at several of the others that are in the space. And, you know, for one, I think that it starts with the founder. And at the early stage, we're really investing in a team and a person. And so, you know, what stood out for me so much about Topia is Daniel, who's the founder and mm-hmm. the CEO of the company, and just his thoughtfulness in building out the product and about, you know, his approach to go to market and just how he's thinking about the long-term vision of the platform and also how he thinks about creators and how he thinks about, you know, how they should be compensated for their skills. And I think that there's a lot of values alignment that we have there, but, you know, I think that a company like Gather, it's Gather Town, it's it's similar I think it's much more of a gamified uh, approach. And I think that Topia is a lot more of a natural human type space that, Mm -hmm. you know, I've used it for so many different things at this point. We had a founder happy hour where it felt like we were, you know, at a bar and be able to mix and mingle naturally. I've had viewing parties for some of my favorite TV shows with friends and I was able to create a different world that mimicked the show that we were watching. And so, you know, I think that there's space for a lot of these different platforms to become successful and to do well. And you're seeing right now these really big rounds that are happening. But I do think that Topia stands out because it is extremely versatile. And I think that it just allows for more use cases than I've seen for these other platforms. And I think that that's going to take it really far. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I've played around with a couple of these different platforms. I actually think they're like really fun just to like walk around. Yeah, they are. So definitely hoping, <laughs> you know, Topia and all the others in the space, you know, do great. Obviously for your sake, rooting for Topia. <laughs> Thank <Okay>. you. <laughs> so, you know, switching gears, I know you are from LA. You love LA. You love talking about how great mm -hmm. it is. So, uh, but, you know, I think when people think about VC traditionally, you know, obviously they think about the Bay and then, I, you know, it's probably next, you know, sort of back and forth between either New York or LA, I'd imagine, you know, maybe some other places come to mind like Austin. Um, but anyways, mm -hmm. how has the industry in LA evolved over the last few years? And now that you work in VC in LA, you know, why do you think it's a promising place to be a VC investor today? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. I am very proud to be from LA and I think it's the best city in the world. And so um, nothing will change my mind about that. But I think that, you know, besides us having the best weather and you know, lifestyle of any other VC market. I think there's a lot of other things. So when I first started out in tech and, you know, thinking about the VC landscape, call it like 10, 15 years ago, I think that there just wasn't that much variety in terms of the types of companies LA had to offer. You know, I think people have seen LA as a traditionally consumer space a lot of, you know, overflow from entertainment and, you know, companies that are more catered to the media space. And over time, I think that has just really evolved and changed a lot. And we're seeing a lot more variety in terms of, you know, there's a lot of, a lot more B2B coming to LA. You look at San Diego, which is a healthcare hub, and you're seeing a lot more in healthcare we have SpaceX and we have like just a lot more happening in the space space for, sorry, that was a, yeah, anyways. <laughs> um, and so I think that people are starting to recognize, you know, how much is going on in LA beyond just consumer and beyond entertainment. And that's becoming a real draw. And then besides that, we have, you know, some of the best universities that are just spitting out amazing talent. Like we have UCLA, we have USC, obviously, mm. we have people coming from Caltech. And so we have, you know, the variety of opportunity, have the talent, it's a much cheaper cost of living. And that means that it's, you know, cheaper to start a business here than San Francisco while also being just a quick 45-minute plane ride up to Silicon Valley if you need to take meetings and then you can come back in time to have dinner with your family. And so I think the proximity to the Valley is also very helpful and important. And I think that that's only going to continue to grow. I mean, we saw the mass exodus from the Bay Area over COVID with a lot of those people bringing their talent, bringing their capital to LA. And I think we have a lot of tailwinds from COVID and with time, I think we're just going to see more and more companies popping up here and um, more and more people choosing to either work in LA or start their companies in LA. Yeah, that's a very compelling uh, advertisement for <laughs> LA. There's one thing I forgot. Go ahead. Um, 
one thing I forgot, which I think is very important, of course, to BC, is that there's a lot more big check writers in LA. Like when you think about the landscape, you know, 10 years ago, there were only smaller firms that were writing small checks. But now, you know, like Bonfire, we're a hundred million dollar seed fund. You know, you see upfront is multi-stage. We have Graycroft down here. We have March Capital, who's, you know, writing checks into growth stage companies. And so it used to also be that in LA, you could only get, you know, checks for for like your first or maybe second round. And Mm. now there's a lot more access to capital, which I think is also extremely important. But yeah, sorry, that's the end of my (laughs) LA commercial. (laughs) No, that's okay. You've convinced me. (laughs) Okay. So I know you were recently selected as a Kauffman fellow as well. Congratulations. Mm -hmm. For those who don't know what that is, what is it and what does this actually involve? Yeah. So it is a two-year program that is basically focused on like education, networking, and leadership development specifically to venture capital. And so When I explain it to my friends and family who aren't in the industry, I basically say that I'm doing an executive MBA program (laughs) specifically for VC. And, you know, in our class specifically, I think there's between 50 and 60 fellows all working in different areas of the industry, most of whom I didn't know before the program. And Mm -hmm. so a great opportunity to expand my network and to just meet people I may not have otherwise crossed paths with and to be able to just share knowledge, share experience and to learn. And I mean, I think that the ultimate goal is to just become better investors and do that by becoming better people. Awesome. Yeah, no, I've heard really, really good things about the program. So, you know, again, congratulations. That's a huge accomplishment. Thank you. You know, so you've had a lot of, you know, sort of early success in your, in your career so far, you know, but I'm sure you're not done. I'm sure there's a lot more that you want to do going forward. So just, you know, looking forward, what are some of the major things that you want to accomplish in your VC career? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things you know, there's short-term goals and long-term goals. I would say, you know, at Bonfire, this is my first time being at a fund where we're leading rounds and where we're taking board seats. So, you know, there's like short-term things where I sit as an observer on the board of several of our companies, but um, I definitely want to grow into a board director and be able to have my own board seat and and not rely on our partners. Of course, the the next goal is to become a general partner and Mm -hmm. to be a fund manager and to, you know, be the check writer at the fund. Although I do have some check writing privileges at Bonfire, which is great. But I think that in order to make the biggest impact, you have to have experience and you have to have the power. And so being able to grow into that role where I'm calling the shots and I'm, you know, doing more around managing the money is what is going to allow me to make the impact that I want to see in the industry. And as you think about this GP goal, you know, mm-hmm. again, I know you love bonfire, but is there a world yeah. in which, you know, there's 
Richard Ventures and you're starting <laughs> your own shop? Yeah, it's interesting because every person I talk to, you know, about my long-term vision always asks that question. And it's interesting because after coming from early stage startups and being on these founding teams, I have less draw to wanting to do that again, mm -hmm. basically with VC and, and starting more or less my own company. And so I would say that that's not my immediate plan or what I see as my like current long-term vision, but again, never say never that might evolve into something that's more appealing to me in the future. Who knows? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm sure either path that you take, you know, you're going to do great <laughs> things. And yeah, I look forward to you so. seeing you again in LA sometime soon. Yeah, sounds great. Looking forward to it.